recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Tonight is Saturday, September 21st, 2013. Once again, I will have Sword Brethren with me, and we will make a presentation which is really related to the threat of communism in Weimar, Germany, in the years 1929 to 1933, which is poorly understood by most, well, by most people today because it's downplayed by mainstream academics and because when we think of communism and communist revolution in Germany in the, in the years between the two world wars, most of the literature available has to do with the opening years of the Weimar Republic, the, the, the early years of the interwar period, and, and the early 1920s, for, for the most part, 1918, 1919, 1920. So, so this will be a little different, this program. We are going to use a mainstream academic source in order to make this presentation. Most of the notes which I've compiled for this presentation come from a man named Dietrich Orlo and his book, Weimar Prussia, the 1925 to 1933, The Illusion of Strength. Dietrich Orlo is a mainstream academic. He was a professor emeritus of history at Boston University where he taught for over 30 years, I believe. He is a mainline academic, and for that reason, from our viewpoint, he is a very, he is very much a liberal. And we will see that in, in many places in his book, he despises the National Socialists. He calls them Nazis throughout the book. And he tries to, he, he tries to make a very strong case for putting the Communist Party in Germany on a, on a level playing field for assessing it as just another flavor of political party for the most part and an, as an alternative to the other mainstream political parties. I think that he's very kind to the communists in his book. Now, he may be trying to be objective. From my vantage point, he's an, he's an outright, he's a liberal. He may as well be a communist. He's the typical American liberal academic who does not understand the evils of Bolshevism and the tyranny and, and, and the, the oppression that came on the white Christian peoples of Russia with the Bolshevik Revolution. He does not understand the, the terror that the Bolsheviks imposed on Russia, or at least that if he does understand that, it certainly does not reflect in any of his assessments of German politics in the 1920s and 1930s, where most Germans had an, had an extreme fear of communism. They feared that what happened to Russia and to the Ukraine would happen to Germany. And, and in his political assessments of the parties in the period between the wars, Dietrich Orlo seems to ignore all of that, even though he admits that the Communist Party was basically a, a, a puppet party 
which was acting on behalf of Soviet interest in Germany. And he, he comes very close to making that admission openly, and we will see that tonight. Once again, I have Sword Brethren with me, and, and hello, Brian. Hello, how are you today, Bill? Wonderful. Do you have any... Um, the, the, this, the, the purpose of this program is to show that the Reichstag, the reaction to the Reichstag fire, that it was a communist plot, was not far-fetched that the Germans, the National Socialists, had every reason to believe that it was a communist plot, that the communists had, had, had been threatening revolution and, and, and overthrow the German government and the institution of basically a Soviet state in Germany, that they've been threatening that ever since 1918. And they oh. actually tried, that they attempted it many times. No, I have a rather funny article in front of me from the New York Times, and it says that the Reichstag fire was perpetrated by the Nazis who were working with Stalin, and that Stalin agreed to help the Nazis destroy the Communist Party in Germany in exchange for some very vague understanding or agreement that he had made with Hitler. And that might be a little extreme, but that's the exact type of Jewish propaganda that most white nationalists are sucked in by and most American patriots, the Alex Jones types, are time and time again sucked in by that type of Jewish propaganda, and they believe it. They believe right. it over and over again. And this is written by a Jewish historian. Would you like me to read this little blurb here from the New York Times? Sure, be my guest. February 1st, 1994. Nazis still lead Reichstag fire suspects. Letter to the editor. What an interesting but specious melange of semi-connected elements Stephen Koch used to cobble together a theory of Hitler-Stalin collaboration in 1933, the Dimitrov Conspiracy, op-ed January 22nd. Unfortunately, it fails, beginning with the contention that the night of the Reichstag fire was a freezing night on February 27, 1933. Rudolf Diels, head wrote in his memoirs that it was Ein Regnerischer vor Frühlingsgebend, a drizzly pre-spring evening. The contentions that the Bulgarian Grigory Dimitrov was freed in a conspiracy that the night of the Long Knives, when the SA stormtrooper chief Ernst Ruhm and the rest of the brown shirt leadership were executed by the SS black shirts, and that Hitler and Stalin had some tacit understanding, the Ruth Fisher theory would be very convenient. Unfortunately, they are most unlikely. Now, right here, he's referring to Grigory Dimitrov as a Bulgarian. Isn't he just a Jew from Bulga Bul Bul Bulgaria? Well, right, and we'll see that even in this work by Orlo, a lot of the German communists were, were actually Jews, or, or they had Russian names. Right. They weren't German at all. And this next paragraph is a doozy. There are unending theories about the Reichstag theory. All were aired, many discredited. The most likely should have been that the Nazis said it themselves by way of a secret passage from Hermann Goering's newly refurbished palace. Berlin's fire chief, Walter Gemp, who probably knew the whole story, was arrested and then found dead in his cell. Hanussen, the nightclub clairvoyant and Nazi confidant who had quasi-predicted the fire and who was said to have recruited the deranged Dutch communist who confessed to it, was also found murdered. And, you know, this guy is also, it appears at one time, he claimed that the Dutch communist himself was, quote, murdered. When we've, we've established, Vanderloop was executed. And well, well, absolutely. 
And who is he, he was absolute. Uh, he was executed after a trial, after a legitimate trial in Germany. Right. Continuing, what did matter was that the Reichstag fire set off the fear of a communist coup, which allowed Hitler to demand restrictive new laws, which were then immediately passed by the parliament and confirmed by President von Hindenburg. These laws marked the end of democracy for Germany. There was surprisingly little opposition to their passage. Well, I would say as an aside, that's because the Weimar government had no popular support. It was a 30-party democracy, and no one party had even a substantial minority. I think the the strongest parties in Germany prior to the the mid 20s, what the Social Democrats might have had 20% of the vote, and in 32, 33, the NSDAP had about 40% of the vote, and the Communists and Socialists had about 30%. But prior to that, it was just a hodgepodge of 30 different parties that had to form coalitions and alliances. So well, when, well, right, the Weimar government was extremely unstable. Right. So when Hitler came in and swept all those parties away, people were glad. Quite a few. Well, well, quite a few of them were, and a lot of people were pretty upset because that they liked the decadence of the Weimar Republic, and 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 because they liked the fact that that thirty or forty political parties could never get anything accomplished to counter the decadence of the Weimar Republic. Right. Well, the Germans were speaking well when they referred to it as the Republic of the Jews. Germans wanted to give their newly installed rulers the chance to clean up the mess. In return, German citizens were willing to relinquish most of their precious rights with the new Hitlerian laws for the protection of the state. Obviously, this was in Hitler's interest. As for Dimitrov, who was arrested with two other Bulgarian communists as a co-conspirator in the fire, and who, according to Mr. Koch, was released in an agreement with the communists, Dimitrov's testimony in open court with the international press in attendance made the clever Goering look like a fool. Dimitrov also successfully hinted that the fire had been set by the Nazis for their own power play. When he finished testifying, it was too late for any Nazi communist collusion. The fat was in the fire. There was little to do but discharge him for insufficient evidence. He later became prime minister of post-war communist Bulgaria. Now, if they've murdered the nightclub guy and they've murdered the um, fire chief, they were found dead in their cells, why would they have to discharge Dimitrov? Couldn't they just arrange for him to die in his prison cell? If they're murdering anybody who's even remotely connected to this, why would they let Dimitrov go after he embarrassed them like that? Wouldn't they have just arranged an accident or a mugging gone wrong? Well, well right. It, 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 you know, anybody who actually examines the history of National Socialist Germany would, could only honestly conclude that it was basically a just state which rested upon the rule of law. Because those communists were rounded up and tried for the Reichstag trial fire and the verdict was not guilty and they were released. That they were released just like any any well well I don't the American criminal justice system has become more and more like the Soviet was in the 1920s all the time but but just like any American would expect somebody who went to trial and was found not guilty of a crime in the American criminal justice system, that's how the national so- the criminal justice system in Germany operated under national socialists. And, and four communists were put on trial with Vanderlube after the Reichstag fire, and when they were found not guilty, they were released. It's as simple as that. I, I mean, that shows right there that Germany was not the... the um, evil fascist dictatorship that the Jews like to make it out to be. 
Okay, tonight is well, the... There's, uh, there's one more paragraph. I wasn't done. Okay. True, there was some Soviet-German collaboration before the Moscow Pact of August 1939, mainly to do with aviation and trade matters. But in February 1933, neither Hitler nor Stalin was sufficiently aware of the other or prescient about the other's place in the future to strike a deal. Hitler's greatest early talent was his intuition. The Reichstag fire, no matter who said it, gave him the opportunity, in his words, to use democracy to destroy democracy. Written by John Weitz. And it notes here that the, uh, this writer is the author of Hitler's Diplomat, The Life and Times of Joachim von Ribbentrop. And I'd like to say as an aside, John Weitz, born in Berlin in 1923, it says here he was a German-born American fashion designer, novelist, and historian, who enhanced his renown as a menswear designer and greatly increased his income when he became one of the first to lend his name to the licensing of products, selling cologne, neckties, umbrellas, etc. During World War II, he served in the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner to the CIA. And he wrote both fiction and nonfiction. Well, I'd say most of his writing about the National Socialists would fall under the category of fiction. And it's clear he's just a bitter Jew who probably got run out of Germany or he, he left Germany when his parents were run out of Germany and being in the fashion industry he, that raises questions about his sexuality as well. well. Well, I hope in the next segment of this series when we discuss the Enabling Act to present the, the, the fact that, and this is right in the pages of Mein Kampf that as soon as the National Socialists gained power in Germany, the abolishment of the so-called parliamentary democracy was inevitable. Well, it spelled out. Adolf Hitler spelled it out in the pages of Mein Kampf. It was the National Socialist political philosophy that parliamentary democracy was adverse to, to, the, um, to, to, to the good governance of the state. It was adverse to good governance, period. And, and for that reason, it had to go. And the major conservative party, the major right-wing party in Germany, before the rise of National Socialism, was the German National People's Party, and they did not want parliamentary democracy. They wanted to destroy parliamentary democracy, abolish it, and return to the old Prussian imperialism and, and, and authoritarianism. And that authoritarianism... What was something that the National Socialists put back on the table in in in, in German governance, and and they were um, that they were the the, the other right wing party, the National People's Party, which was much larger. It, it was a very large party. It was much larger than the National Socialists until 1930, I believe. Well, well, they were all for it. That's why they were all attracted and and, and switched over to National Socialism and supported. Adolf Hitler. Well, Hitler because he, he would return to an authoritarian state. That's what most conservative German people wanted. They didn't want democracy. They saw it as evil. Well, didn't Hitler explicitly state that parliamentary democracy was necessary for the development of Marxism? Well, well he, he, he did make uh, – I, I don't know if he well, stated that precisely, but me, he um, did make allusions that were similar to that. Page 53, Mein Kampf. Democracy as practiced in Western Europe today is the forerunner of Marxism. In fact, the latter would not be conceivable without the former. 
Democracy right. is the breeding ground in which the bacilli of the Marxist world pest can grow and spread. By the introduction of parliamentarianism, democracy produced an abortion of filth and fire, the creative fire of which, however, seems to have died out. And it does. And we've seen that in America, and we've seen that in Britain, and we've seen that everywhere in Europe where it's taken root. And, and it has been a very destructive force, and it's inevitable in Adolf Hitler's political philosophy, that if he ever came to power in Germany, he would do away with it, and he did. So right. what? It's it not a surprise. It should have been expected, and, and we'll get to that. Uh, I pray we get to that next week. Now, I, I would like to um, present this paper, which and, and, and this presentation is entitled Justifying the National Socialist Reaction to the Reichstag Fire. However, tonight, we will really just lay the groundwork for that. In order to understand why the National Socialists would immediately believe that the Reichstag fire was a communist plot, one must understand the extent to which communist revolution was a threat all throughout the post-war period of Weimar Germany. Here, we shall make that evident. And we will do it from a rather liberal academic who has a clear bias against the Nazis, for reason that this author has a clear antipathy for National Socialism, we have chosen this source in order to make our presentation. Cool. And this, most of our notes for this program tonight will come from the book Weimar Prussia, 1925-1933, The Illusion of Strength by Dietrich Orlow. You have something to interject. I was just going to say, you know, it, it wouldn't do if we were just going to sit here and quote from Goebbels' diary or Goering's diary because they're listed as the main suspects by the left. But even these well, liberals... well, absolutely, but it, it, it's nice. I chose this source because he does detail the threat, the, the, the perceived threat, the threat as it was perceived by the federal government in Germany by the Weimar government, before the National Socialists came to power, they understood that a communist revolution was always a threat. They understood it in 1929. They understood it in 1932. They understood it in 1933. There's no doubt they understood it. And they were afraid of it. And that's why when the Reichstag burned, because of all the communist violence that had taken place in, in the years leading up to the Reichstag fire, it was natural for the National Socialists to imagine that it was, a, that, that it was indeed, as the culprit admitted, as van der Lubbe admitted, that it was a signal for a communist uprising in Germany. They right. expected And supposedly Americans had these great red scares, but... It seems in the end nothing came of it. You know, we, we were worried, oh, communists are going to take over, communists are going to take over, they're going to land but, commandos. Well, you know something? All the time we were worried that the communists were going to take over. They were already taking it, over. It, it didn't happen because the communists did take over. <laughs> right, you know, all oh, the Soviets are going to invade next week. Oh, it'll be the Cubans, it'll be the Red Chinese, it'll be this, it'll be that. Oh, no, it, it was the New York Jews. <laughs> they were already here. Okay, this section of, of, of this presentation is taken from the book, Weimar Prussia, 
by um, the illusion of strength by Dietrich Orlo. Here is chap from this section is from chapter three, which is entitled "In in Politics: Security Matters, Personnel Policies, Administration, and Church-State Relations." Of course, we we will only present several paragraphs. We can't present the whole chapter. What would you like to read, or should I? Would you mind beginning? The state, and this is quoting Dietrich Orlo, the state was determined to create a police force that could deal effectively with outbreaks of political violence by all anti-Republican forces. Prussia's goal was a well-organized, well-paid, and politically reliable police force that would also be kept free of interference by the Reich. Well, the references to the Reich and in, in, in throughout these years, 1929 to 1933, are not references to the Third Reich. They're references to the, the, the this Reich, which was the, the, the German federal state was considered a Reich at this time, and, and well, which is a German empire, right? And the references to the Reich are just the references to the federal government of, of Germany at this time. The state's municipal police chiefs were the only group of top officials in Prussia that contained a large number of outsiders, literally outsiders. The American technical term is lateral entries. Men who did not, well, well the, this, the, the fact that the police chiefs were mostly outsiders did not sit well with some of the champions of professionalism among the state's leaders because outsiders were officials who lacked the administrative law degree that was the traditional prerequisite for a high-level civil service career in Prussia. In other words, these police chiefs weren't brainwashed. Ten of the 13 municipal police chiefs appointed after August 1925 were outsider, for the most part former labor union officials, which means they're probably Jews, right? Prussia also kept ties between its police forces and the Reichs were to a minimum in, in the German army. Prussian police legislation precluded the routine transfer of army veterans to positions in the state police, a practice that had been traditional in Prussia before 1914 and continued to a lesser extent even after the revolution. Similarly, the state resisted any efforts by the Reich authorities to subject the state's police forces to the control of the Reichswehr, that the army, during times of declared states of emergency. It was not surprising that the state's personal pa- personnel policies for its police forces evoked a cry of indignation from the German nationalists. Although the Reich authorities would later charge that Prussia's concern with right-wing extremism and the state's unwillingness to cooperate with the Reichswehr in, in internal security matters meant that the state's security experts were blind to the communist danger. The Prussian authorities for a long time actually underrated the fascist threat and overestimated the communist strength. Well, and, well there was a, um, and during the Weimar era, the most famous Berlin police chief was Bernard Weiss, and Goebbels called him Isidore. He would call him Isidore Weiss, and most Germans eventually came to think that that was his first name, but he was actually Bernard Weiss. He was a leftist Jew 
He was by trade a lawyer. He had a um, doctorate of law, but then he was appointed deputy chief of the Berlin Criminal Police, the Cripo, in 1918. And then he became head of that department in 1925. In 1920, he was also made head of the political police and was appointed vice president for the entire Berlin police force in 1927. So maybe that has something to do with why the communists were able to get away with so much in Berlin during those years. Well, well, right. And, and here we have um, Orlo. He, he's actually he, he's consistently a communist sympathizer, right? And, uh-huh. and, and my assessment of this paragraph, I, I wanted to show that there definitely was a concern by the, the Prussian government, the state government of Prussia, and, and um, uh, concerning the communists and the possibility of a communist uprising, which we'll see happens real soon here. H- however, the author's claim, the author's claims concerning this throughout this chapter seem to reflect his anti-Nazi bias. For instance, the Nazis came to power, so therefore the, the Prussians must have underestimated the threat from the National Socialists, right? simply because they came to power. That seems to be the conclusion that he's making. There is no evidence of particular instances of right-wing violence which is offered in this chapter by the author. He doesn't cite one evidence of right-wing violence, and, and he doesn't attribute any evidence of violence which can be attributed to national socialists. The author seems to be a leftist offering generalities which demonize the right and the national socialists. He also perceives national socialism as right-wing. That's his perception. It's not mine. National so- and, and I have to go along with his perception while, while we're presenting material from his book. But national socialism, in reality, is neither left-wing left nor right-wing. It doesn't belong to either wing. It transcends left-right politics. Right, and that's and, what the um, idiotic libertarian capitalists in America just don't seem to get. They call National Socialism just a variation of communism. Well, you know, when you let the Jews dictate your economic policy and your economic perspective and philosophy on life, you're bound to make those sort of mistakes. Well, well, right. They attribute fascism to the right wing, and, and, and then they claim national socialism is, is basically Marxist in its essence, and, and it's all lies and, and subterfuge. To continue with Chapter 3 of Orlo's book, both Prussian and Reich officials gave excessive credence to the communists' own boast. As we saw in the years after 1925, the KPD, which is the Communist Party of Germany, underwent massive internal upheavals. The final result was the party's subjugation. And this is the important part. This is what the author doesn't get. Even though this guy's a professor of history, he don't really understand the danger here, right? Even though he admits it. The final result was the party's subjugation to Stalin and the Comintern after 1925. But before the party's Stalinization was complete, left, right, and center factions attempted to prove to the KPD's Russian masters, as well as to the party's rank-and-file members, that their particular strategies could bring about the long-delayed communist revolution in Germany. 
Well, saying that the um, officials gave excessive credence to the communists' own boasts, that's not very... Uh, it's inaccurate and it's somewhat disingenuous since the Rote Front Kampferbund had close to 150,000 members by 1930. That's not well, well, insignificant. It's, it's a paramilitary wing of a party. You know, the KPD had several million members and voters. Their paramilitary wing had almost 150,000 active fighters. Right. The, the author's clearly biased against Nazis, right? However, through the rest of the chapter, he discusses acts of political violence in Germany at this time, and, and we're going to get to the... Um, the, the uprising of 1929 momentarily. However, he doesn't attribute any acts of violence to, to the right wing, any specific acts of violence in this period, and he doesn't attribute any acts of violence to National Socialism. So, so he's basically, um, he, he's basically kind of covering for the communists. And 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 saying that the Prussian should have the Prussian government really should have been wary of those evil Nazis. Why? Simply because the evil Nazis came to power. Well, well, his entire his entire thesis is based on the false premise that Nazis are evil, and, and that the right wing, um, when the the Nazis rose up and took over the government, that that was a negative. His, his entire premise is based on that, and, and it's really ridiculous. And, and this guy's supposed to be a professor of history and and, and objective, and, and he's not objective at all. Well, you know, if the 1918 November Revolution had been a success, there'd be a paper, Germany Number One, a collection of reports on Bolshevism in Germany, and we'd be talking today about the mass graves in Germany, the massacres, the gulags. The American communists would be vehemently denying it, calling us all fascists and capitalists and reactionary counter-revolutionaries. And they'd be insisting that those 30 million German farmers and peasants, they starved themselves to death. And there was just a famine. It wasn't the fault of um, Liebknecht and Luxembourg. It wasn't their fault at all. It was the counter-revolutionaries. If the communists had come to power in Germany, they would have inflicted untold misery upon the entire nation. I mean, look at it. They didn't come to power, and look what they still did. They murdered hostages in Munich. They killed thousands of people. They basically plunged the nation into a low-scale civil war. Well, well, they really wanted to come to power, and, and, and thanks to the Free Corps and, and, and men like that, they, they were stopped, right? Okay, on, on with back to Orlo's paper and chapter three of his book. A key factor in evaluating the danger of a communist coup was assessing the strength of the KPD's own paramilitary organization, the Rote Front Kampferbund, the RFB. Founded in 1925, the RFB had a membership of several thousand, but opinions differed widely about its discipline and combat readiness. Well, you know, Bill, even um, most mainstream historians say that by the summer of 1925, they had over 51,000 members. So he says founded in 1925, a membership of several thousand. Well, 51,000 is a bit more than several thousand. So he's, Well, well he, Orlo is basically, you know, this guy's made a career. He's based his academic career on writing about German politics, right? So he's made a career line about German politics. Exactly. And he's basically covering for the communists. He's, he's downplaying the communist threat throughout his book. 
okay? He's downplaying it, but the communist threat is still, and that's what I like about this book. Uh, I like about pointing it out, and that's why we're, we're discussing it here tonight, because even though this guy tries real hard to downplay the communist threat and to make the Communist Party in Germany look like another um, political choice, a viable political choice for the people, he, he based, it, you can still see that the threat of a communist revolution in Germany, even with all of his trying to um, clean it up, polish it up, it, it's like putting lipstick on a pig, right? He, he's trying to clean it up. He's trying to polish it up. You can still see that communism was a threat and that the Communist Party, he had to admit, was basically under the control of Joseph Stalin. And he admitted that. But for him, for him to um, deflate their numbers so substantially, to say a few thousand, a few thousand would be 3,000, maybe four or five, but he's deflating it substantially. It's closer to 52,000. Well, well, absolutely. And even with all his deflation and, and all his trying to pretty up the Communist Party in Germany, we still see that it, it, was, it was indeed a threat. And he still admits that the government was the, the pre- National Socialist government, the Weimar government in Germany was still afraid of a communist uprising right up into the 1930s, 1932, 1933. Back to Dietrich Orlo. The Reich government argued that the RFB was a genuine threat to law and order, while the Prussian authorities regarded it as a blustering but not acutely dangerous organization. So, so that, there you have it, right? He, he's um, explaining to us that the Prussian, that the Prussian, Prussia is controlled by the SPD, right? That the socialist, that yeah, the social, socialist Democratic the Party of Deutschland, Democratic Party, right? And the SPD is a very socialist, left-leaning organization, and we'll see throughout this that the socialists are actually pretty soft on the communists. And, and we'll see that in our conclusion to an even greater degree than we will here. That they did crack down on them a little in 1929, but that crackdown was very temporary. They banned the RFB, and the, and the ban was not permanent because the RFB was back again in 1932, 1933, and the Prussian government refused to ban them at that time. Right. Well, you know, the um, Rote Front Kampferbund had about, um, in 1930-32, about 130,000 members out of a nation of 65 million. That's two-tenths of 1% of the population. That'd be the equivalent of about 630,000 people in a paramilitary movement in the U.S. today. And I guarantee you, if we had 630,000 men in an identity paramilitary militia, and we were leading this militia, and we had a stated objective of overthrowing the government, I think they'd take it pretty seriously. And we were controlled, openly controlled by a foreign government. Right. right. Yeah. We're openly being financed by um, Serbia and the, the Russians. Right. Serbia and Syria, right. <laughs> Almost as soon as the RFB was founded, the Reich Minister of the Interior demanded that Prussia prohibit the RFB through the state. But Severing and Grzynski both felt, and, and they're two Prussian leaders at the time, SPD party officials and, and office holders, both felt it was sufficient to keep a close watch on the organization. 
They only moved against individual locals when, as was true in Dortmund, the police found that the RFB maintained stores of illegal weapons. So, so they had every possibility and, 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 and every avenue that they had um, to, to launch the communist revolution that, that they were bragging about, that they were boasting about for, for several years by this time. Right. Well, However, Bill, if you're interested to know, um, Severin was a Social Democrat Party member, and Grzynski actually fled Germany after Hitler came to power. <laughs> Well, that, that, right. that, that should say a few things about Grzynski. He fled to Switzerland, then France, then the U.S., and he organized an anti-Nazi group once he arrived in the U.S. And probably made a comfortable living in New York. <laughs> Back to Orlo. However, by 1928, there was increasing evidence that ultra-leftist elements in the KPD, the Communist Party, were using the RFB, which is the paramilitary wing of the Communist Party, as a part of their strategy of provoking street violence to create what they regarded as a proto-revolutionary situation, the, that they love to create anarchy, right? The Prussian Interior Ministry planned to restrain the RFB's activities in the spring of 1928. However, tactical considerations delayed the action. The Prussians felt that moving against the RFB just before the upcoming national and state elections would give the communists an additional campaign issue, that the, the dangers of parliamentary democracy, right? In view of what was to come, the delay was unfortunate. In the fall and winter of 1928 and 29, the, KP, the KPD's ultra-left wing disappointed by the failure of the strategy of union from below to weaken the SPD and the Communist Party in Germany, their long-standing strategy was to weaken the more mainstream Socialist Party and attract its members to them, right? Right, so people would have no alternative. But a lot of people uh, ended up going with the NSDAP. And I think the author here, referring to the KPD's ultra-left wing, that's a bit funny since the party by definition is an ultra-left wing party. Yeah, right. I mean, how more left-wing can you get? Right, so if you're on the ultra-left wing of a Stalinist communist party, then I, I don't know. that There's something wrong. You're, you're a scary person. Yeah, right. I can't imagine what you might be. Uh, to, make, to make Lenin and Stalin look like moderates. Like, right, well, so you... maybe you're a, a Jew in Germany who thinks Stalin and Lenin were too polite, you know, that there, weren't, there wasn't a high enough body count in, in the Ukraine. <laughs> Disappointed by the failure of the strategy of union from below to weaken the SPD, that the KPD's ultra-left wing felt that spectacular action was needed both to impress the Comintern councils and to demonstrate to the Social Democrats that the German communists were still a force to be reckoned with. Communist violence culminated in a series of riots in Berlin in May 1929, the KPD had applied for permission to stage one of their traditional May Day demonstrations in the capital. The Berlin chief of police at the time, Karl Zorgeibel, who was an SPD party member, feared the demonstrations would lead to violence and prohibited the march. Well, well he had good reason to fear that, right? That, that They gave him good reason to fear that. Well, and he's a socialist, right? Anytime communists assemble, violence isn't far off. Right, absolutely. 
The communists deliberately and openly ignored the ban. The police, this sounds like America in the 60s, right? The police chief was determined to meet what he regarded as a direct challenge to law and order, except Americans didn't have any police chiefs like him. The police chief, well, well, fully supported by the Prussian Ministry of the Interior, Zorgeibel ordered the police to use massive force in breaking up the communist demonstrations. This is Berlin, 1929. Right, well, you know, the the southern... Some of the southern states, they had guys like Bull Connor, but they got run out of office eventually. Well, well, right. The, the, the result was a bloody altercation between the police and the demonstrators in which more than a dozen people lost their lives. Immediately afterwards, the ministry ordered the dissolution of the RFB throughout Prussia, and we'll see shortly, well, we'll see before the end of this presentation tonight, that that dissolution of the RFB it was an order that had no teeth because the RFB was still around three and four years later and were still a threat. The political wisdom and long-range consequences of these events are not easy to assess. The Berlin police and the Prussian Ministry of the Interior assumed that the communists planned the riots as a direct provocation of the Prussian government. And the communists opened talk about a final armed battle with capitalism seem to support such an interpretation. On the other hand, verbal posturing was a familiar KPD propaganda tactic. And this is what Orlo does throughout his book. He takes all of the KPD, all of the Communist Party threats, and he labels them as verbal posturing. Just rhetoric. Or, yeah, yeah, right. It's all rhetoric, and, and none of it's true. And if the KPD could have launched a revolution, they surely would have, if they didn't think that it would it, it would be a far too costly operation. Right. So and, it's all it's all rhetoric until they come to power and kill forty million white Christians. Right. And that's the way the communists and and liberals in America have always treated communists in Europe. So when a communist says that he's planning to overthrow the government overthrow the existing order, and purge all the counter-revolutionaries, why shouldn't we take him at his word? Yeah, yeah. oh, that's just verbal posturing. That, that's just camp, that, That's just another liberal pe- campaign promise, right? We so should when, 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 when they um, say they're going to start setting off bombs under squad cars and torching ROTC barracks, so oh, that's just rhetoric. Right. And, and when they do set off bombs under squad cars and, and they torch ROTC barracks, that they're just disenchanted youth. That's just, they're just protesting. They're, they're expressing their outrage at their situation. On the other hand, back to Orlo, verbal posturing was a familiar KPD propaganda tactic. It was often intended for more, intra, more for intra-party consumption than to launch concrete activities. And, and again, I would say that the author often sounds like a communist apologist. He does. It is also true that the prohibition of the RFB, that after the prohibition of the RFB, there was a decline in the level of large-scale communist violence in Prussia. But it remains unclear if the state's decree was the cause or coincidence. Imagine that. So the state prohibits the assembly of a self-avowed radical paramilitary group that had been illegally arming, organizing, and instigating riots, and after they're prohibited from organizing, assembling, or carrying out any activities since the group's been banned, 
riots and unrest decrease, and that's just a coincidence. It has nothing to do with the outline of this group of self-avowed bandits. It's ridiculous, right? It is also true that after the prohibition of the RFP, there was a decline in the level of large-scale communist violence in Prussia, but it remains unclear if the state's decree was cause or coincidence. He's just covering for them. The KPD's ultra-left phase, he calls it a phase, right, had probably, probably <laughs> reached its end in any case. And, and that's nonsensical conjecture, right? And how, how is it an ultra-left phase? Right, right. Yeah, right. They're ultra-left, period. Recent research has demonstrated that the Prussian authorities, and especially Zorgeibel as police chief, were not without blame in creating the situation. Well, well, well Zorgeibel told them flat out, no demonstrations. He never approved the demonstration. Uh, I mean, that, well, that they weren't given license to do it in the city, right? And, and they, ignored, that they ignored his orders and did it anyway. I'm How could they I'm very interested to know what this recent research is, since this is an appeal to an authority which I believe is a false authority. If, if we were the author of paper and we wrote, experts agree, the white race is biologically superior, they'd call it garbage. And even if we cited a mountain of sources, they'd still call it garbage. But they'd point out, and rightly so, that you just can't write experts agree or studies show or surveys indicate. You need to actually cite the research, cite the studies, cite the experts. Well, well, right. He has no citation here, and he goes on to say that, as he goes on to say that the Berlin police handling of the May Day demonstration showed all the classic symptoms of overreaction and unnecessary violence, and that is that the standard Marxist liberal line every time you have. Um, a, a, a police department or an army or, or any other military or paramilitary organization that um, com commits an, an act of counterviolence against the violent group, that they always come up with that same line that, that's classic symptoms of overreaction that's and unnecessary violence. The riot. Right. And, and, so and the... the, the um, the, the bottom line, and, and we'll see this in comments I have from General Leon DeGrell at the end of this presentation tonight, the bottom line is that the communists only understood violence and, and, and that they had to be countered with violence in order for a, a, a defense against them to be effective. They only well, understood violence. This man would rather blame the police instead of the people who applied for a permit, were told no, and they decided to rally anyway. So they weren't law-abiding. They just figured they would go through the formality, and they were going to hold their protest and their riot and their demonstration no matter what the police said. So it's not the fault of the self-avowed revolutionaries who want to tear down the existing social order and bring about a revolution. The violence isn't their fault. The violence is the fault of the police who took to the streets to stop their illegal, unauthorized demonstration. Well, well, if Americans had known what went on in the Weimar Republic in the 19, late 1920s and 1930s, that they would have recognized what was going on in the streets of America in the 1960s and early 70s. Well, you know, there, there was a lot of Weimar-style violence in America in the 20s and 30s. I'm going to send you a video, and maybe you can make it to the MK site. Well, well... There was a kiss like Sacco and Vanzetti, and, and there was a lot of, of, of violence of that type. And... Um, I'm talking about and, riots and labor unions and 
strike. Well, well right, but but it was never it, it was never portrayed in the Jewish controlled media in the manner in which it should have been portrayed. It never was. There is no doubt, back to back to Orlo, there is no doubt, however, that Zorg Eibel's and Grzynski's reaction to the May demonstrations plunged relations between the communists and the social democrats to new levels of bitterness and animosity. While the social democrats professed to have a clear conscience about the May Day actions, for the communists, these events became the bloody May. The communists described Zorg Eibel as the Mussolini of Berlin. He's a socialist. This guy's an SPD party member, right? And all of a sudden, he's the Mussolini of Berlin. And Grzynski as the murderer of the workers. On the eve of new challenges from the extreme right, the left was more divided than ever. Well, well as an aside, if this man is the murderer of the workers, it never ceases to amaze me that the left, they can call for a demonstration on 10 minutes' notice, and half a million people can turn up across the country, and they call themselves peasants and workers, yet they never seem to be at work. You know, most people who are working can't drop everything they're doing and take part in a riot. I mean, it doesn't go over very well if you tell your boss you're going to leave at noon and you're not coming back for the rest of the day. You'll, you'll see him in a couple of days depending on whether or not you get arrested because you're on your way to a riot across town. It just it doesn't add up. I, I have to wonder, were any of these people working, or were they just bought and paid for? Were they a rent-a-mob? That well, is a standard Jewish, Jewish, uh, that's a standard Jewish tactic to employ a rent-a-mob. Well, well, it is a standard Jewish tactic. because It goes all the way back to the Book of Acts. In fact, um, what we saw in Acts chapter 14 in my presentation last night, e- even though I didn't portray it in that manner, that the, um, the, the Jews always also claimed, to, and, and, and this is the basis of, of Marxism, claimed to be the representative and, of, and, and the fighter of rights for the worker. And and really, he just wants to exploit the worker as much as the capitalist does. What do Jews know about the worker's plight? They don't work. Right. Now, 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 Orlo here is talking about new challenges from the extreme right, but these challenges, are, these challenges which he describes, are not described as having come from National Socialists, and in fact, they didn't. To continue with Orlo, in their handling of the right-wing extremists. The Prussian authorities concentrated far too long on the danger of a new putsch. That their Ministry of the Interior was convinced that various groups were planning a coup, although the officials also recognized that dissension and ineffective leadership prevented any of the pseudo-military formations from launching another putsch, at least for the moment. Nevertheless, Prussia remained vigilant. The state's authorities were especially nervous since they were convinced that in the battle against right-wing extremism, they were essentially on their own. Little help could be expected from either the civilian or the military agencies of the Reich. On the contrary, the Reich interior minister all but sabotaged Prussia's efforts to suppress the activities of the anti-Republican Reich. The author goes on to discuss the banning in Prussia of an extreme right party called the Viking Bund. The Viking Bund. And, and, the, um... and the, desire, 
the desire and initiative towards rearmament, which was undertaken by certain elements of the Wehrmacht. He only mentions that several pages later, where discussing government employee salaries and the poorly compensated municipal employees, he says local officials' resentment because of the cuts that began in 1930 was one of the reasons for the higher proportion of Nazi sympathizers among municipal employees. So, so my, my assessment of the rest of his chapter is that the KPD has a, a paramilitary branch, the RFB, with relations to Stalin and plans to overthrow the Reich, but the evil Nazis may tend to raise the salaries of town clerks. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm on the um, German wiki here to get a little more information about the Viking Bund and take it with a grain of salt since it is wiki and there's a lot of communists in Germany today. It says that after the dissolution of the um, Viking Bund in April of 1928, many of their members continued their activities in related organizations such as the Stahlhelm or the SA. Well, well, the, the Stahlhelm is mentioned later in his book in, in Chapter right. 5. And, the the and Stahlhelm, we'll they're not any kind of fascist organization. They're just conservatives, monarchists, and they want the old order reestablished. Well, well, absolutely. And a lot of those types of peoples were, were attracted to, the, to National Socialism because they understood that Hitler was at least a, a, a believer in authoritarianism. And, and uh, he rejected parliamentary democracy, which they all saw as a danger. Right. I think the um, Stahlhelm conservative types might have realized at some point the old order, the Kaiser, that wasn't coming back, that you know he wasn't going to be restored, and that Germany was going to be some sort of dictatorship. It could either be an autocratic military NSDAP dictatorship, or it could be a communist dictatorship as a puppet state satellite of the Soviet Union. And the choice was obvious at that point. Well, well, in chapter three of his book, Orwell really wants to demonize the Nazis. He really wants to demonize the NSDAP, and he basically can't. And the, the, the best he could come up with is examples of right-wing um, extremism and a danger against the, the, you know, a danger against the republic from the right wing, as he perceives it, is that the Nazis want to raise the salaries of municipal employees. Or that they were likely to do that, and that's okay. just it, it shows. Help. It shows that even that the extreme liberal case against national socialism at this point is absolutely ineffectual. That 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 the national socialists are not at all what the liberals would like to portray them as, because Orlo has nothing to accuse them of here. How dare they want to um, raise the salaries of? civil servants and government workers and municipal... Well, well right. It's, it's ridiculous. His, the, 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 the premises of, of the chapter that there was a great threat from the anti-Republican right are ridiculous because there's really no, not, not much threat at all. You had a nationalist segment in the Wehrmacht. Big deal. Big deal. The, the Viking Bund, he, he doesn't really even blame them for anything. They just existed. Right. So, you know, so they were the the German wiki. They show a lot of bias by including the Viking Bund and the Stahlhelm 
under categories, Reichswehr, the they were Freikorps organizations. They technically weren't part of the German military. You know, the Weimar era military was the Reichswehr. Right. And these organizations were private. The government wasn't organizing them and ordering them around. Well, well, would you like to read my notes from Chapter 5, or do you want me to continue? All right. From Chapter 5, the German parties in Prussia, 1930-1933. In this chapter, the author describes the political parties of Weimar Germany. The largest of the Prussian opposition parties, opposed to the Weimar coalition led by the Social Democrats, SPD, was the DNVP, German Nationalist People's Party had consistently rejected parliamentary democracy as a constitutional system ever since the revolution of 1918. Despite mounting evidence that its obstructionist policies, here the author reveals his own leftist leanings by calling anti-democrats obstructionist. Well, well right, and, and that's my note. That, that's, my, that's my comment. He, he is. He, he's the, the, the conservative party in Prussia did not want. It was forced on them. That this, that this parliamentary democracy was forced on the German people. They didn't vote for it. So, so how could it be democratic? That they didn't choose to have a parliamentary democracy. It was based, they saw it as being forced on them, and, and they wanted to return to monarchy. Right. And is he the one who wrote here that the DNVP was the German Nationalist People's Party? Because technically it was the Deutsche National Volkspartei, German National People's Party, not nationalist. Was that a, his note or your note? No, no, that's my note. That's okay. Oh. Okay. Well, he's calling them obstructionists, but the only thing they're seeking to obstruct is the obliteration and destruction and subjugation of their nation by Stalin and his minions. So any normal German who cares an ounce for Germany, for his fatherland, would be an obstructionist to that agenda. There's no doubt that they didn't want to um, engage in, in a parliamentary democracy with socialists. Right. So if Obama and, and his, if Obama and his cronies suddenly gutted our Constitution and gave us a Soviet-style Constitution, and we formed a party to oppose that, and they said that we're an anti-constitutional obstructionist party, well, yes, we, uh, we would be obstructing their new constitution, which we would see as a garbage constitution and a betrayal of our inalienable God-given rights. That would be a normal, natural, healthy response. My, my point here is Orlo betrays his own um, leftist leanings because he calls the, the, this party obstructionist at this point. Right. So because they won't go along with an agenda that they think is antithetical to German interests, they're suddenly obstructionists. Right. Despite mounting yeah. evidence that its obstructionist policies hurt the party, the DNVP blindly followed this course to the end, resolutely refusing to function as a loyal opposition. And and this is my note that the author that the author upbraids them for sticking to their principles and for refusing to play the game, right? Well, I don't think there's really any such thing as a loyal opposition. If if I'm an opposition party and the government is a communist or socialist or social democratic government, I'm not going to be a loyal opposition here to play my role in a professional wrestling match. My goal is to bring your party down, bring this government down, and bring my party to power. Right. And if that means bringing the whole rotten system down, so be it. The, the idea of loyal opposition, 
they, they think that conservatives are supposed to be living straw men, and they're just there to play a role. They're to be graceful losers. And that's what the conservatives in America do. They, they fill that role wonderfully, don't they, Bill? Absolutely. Rejecting the advice of some moderates in its ranks, they continued to pursue the dream of restoring Prussian authoritarianism. Orlau then explains how the German National People's Party, by the mid-1920s, did indeed adopt a rather mainstream conservative role in Weimar politics, but that eventually it and all of the conservative splinter groups were eventually absorbed by the National Socialists. Hitler's philosophy would certainly seem a natural for the Prussian conservatives. Orlau, and it would, because Hitler was, Hitler was an authoritarian. And, and, and I believe that's why he easily attracted many of the um, former members of the German Nationalist, National People's Party because he, he was offering a reach, at, at least he wasn't offering, offering the, 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 um, the, the monarchy back. He couldn't do that, but, but he was offering a return to authoritarianism and, and a move away from parliamentary democracy. Right. Yeah. And if, if you're Hitler, how could you support the restoration of a monarch who formed an alliance with Austria-Hungary, a decadent, multiracial, Judaized state, a monarch, Wilhelm II, who appointed Jews to high places and allowed Germany to be led into a disaster. Wilhelm II just wasn't fit to lead Germany. He was inept. Well, well Hitler wrote at length opposing that, um, that, that tripartite, that, 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 um, that I forget exactly um, what he called it, but, but the, the, the alliance between those nations. He wrote a length against it. Well, it was based on nothing. It was just based on geography. Orlau then explains how the German National People's Party by the mid-1920s did indeed adopt a rather mainstream conservative role in Weimar politics, but that eventually it and all of the conservative splinter groups were eventually absorbed by the National Socialists. Hitler's philosophy would certainly seem a natural for the Prussian conservatives. Orlau then explained how the DNVP alienated another Prussian opposition party, the Catholic Center Party, in a dispute over relations with the Vatican. Well, Catholicism is not particularly popular in Prussia, is it? The Prussians are mostly Lutherans, and Catholicism is more around, around the um, Rhineland and Bavaria. Right. So I don't see why the DNVP would have to work with a Catholic Prussian party, since Catholicism is not particularly strong in Prussia. Right. The, 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 cat, the center party wanted them to, um, to sign a pact with, with the Pope, and, and they didn't want to do it. So, so they, it, that, that caused a divide, right? right? Then he says, in contrast, the DNVP accepted the Nazis as full-fledged partners of the national right. Although some DNVP members told Otto Brown privately of their misgivings, about the emerging partnership, it became increasingly difficult to distinguish the programmatic positions, parliamentary tactics, or political rhetoric of the two parties. Not even anti-Semitism distinguished them as DNVP speakers in the Lantag. Is that Lantag or Steppe Lanstag? I, I believe it's Lantag. I'm not sure. I could be wrong. It, it may have come out wrong in, in the optical character recognition, right? The uh, Prussian Provincial Parliament or... Right. Well, oh, yeah, the Lanstag is the Prussian Provincial Parliament. All right, then I'm thinking it's missing an S, so I'm going to say Lanstag. Became increasingly open in their attacks on Jews. 
With this, Orlau describes once again the DNVP's disenchantment with and lack of participation in the parliamentary democracy. Well, if you believe there's a system that's inherently antithetical to your nation and your national interests, why would you serve as a loyal opposition in a system that you believe is destroying your people and leading them to ruin? You would abolish the system. That's what our founders did. There's no doubt. Absolutely. And the well, DNVP would have done it, and, and the NSDP, but, well, Hitler's political philosophy in Mein Kampf outlines that he will do it, that he would do it, and, and he did, as soon right. as they came to power. If you ask King George III for your freedom 20 or 30 times and he answers you with injuries, you don't just continue to play the role of a loyal subject appealing to the mercy and the generosity of a tyrant. And if you ask the Jewish finance lords to stop pillaging your country and you've asked them 15 times and they just laugh at you and tell you to get back to work before they have your party broken up and you thrown in a gulag, at what point do you stop playing into their parliamentary system and you just throw them out of the country? He also describes anti-Semitism within the rather mainstream DNVP, and therefore we see that anti-Semitism in Germany did not start with, nor was it limited to, National Socialism. He concludes that Prussia's German nationalists would serve as junior partners of the Nazis in order to see the hated system of political democracy destroyed. Next. That, that, that democracy is good. But the writer writes from the, the, the Orlo writes from the perspective that, that um, democracy is good and and understand why these men that, that they must be wicked and evil for wanting to destroy it. I, I mean, he doesn't come out and say that, but he certainly infers it. Well, democracy is the curious belief that mere numbers alone govern a country, and that. Anybody who bleeds, you know, that, that whole thing, do I not, you know, if you prick me, do I not bleed? We're, we all bleed red, one race human. So if you get 51% of a country comprised of aliens and you give them citizenship via fiat, now they can just vote, take control of the country, and the posterity of the founders count for nothing now. That's democracy. Democracy, I think, is contrary to racialism. Well, well, of course it is. It, it's it's ruled by emotion, basically. Well, it's mob rule, and in fact, it's not actually mob rule. It's ruled by those who control, organize, and guide the mobs. Right, and and the Jews understand that. They fully understand that, right. and and that's why they control the media before they that they um that make a push for the institution of democracy everywhere they go. Right, it always starts with media and finance right around the same time. They use their finance empire to buy up what few Goyim media outlets remain. You know, one by one, all of the papers that our people founded were purchased up, snatched up by the Jews. I forget who it was, but he explained that Hollywood was basically created by white people like D.W. Griffith, and they've just purchased it all up and turned it against us. All of our inventions, all of our instruments, radio, the telegraph, television, the printing press, they've turned all of our inventions against us, things that they never could have invented in 10,000 years, but they used f fake monopoly money, paper money that they printed up on a printing press, and they bought our creative work product.
all the people that the um the the movie camera from Thomas Edison. Right. They didn't they, create they it. They stole its use. Right. No, no, but they did. They stole its use from Thomas Edison. That that's another story, right? I, I don't have it today. Next, describing the National Socialists, he states that the NSDAP competed with the KPD for leadership of the revolutionary opposition. But Orlau never attributes violence against the state or its government to the NSDAP, not once, even though he betrays his antipathy for the NSDAP rather consistently with statements such as the one where he discusses their budding support, and he says, quote, Signs of the Nazis' corrosive effect on some segments of German society had been evident for some time. The explosive growth of the Nazi student movement, for example, clearly indicated the movement's inroads among middle-class Germans. So what makes it corrosive? Because they won't um, bow down to the Jew? Well, it's, it's Orlo takes for granted that national socialism is evil. That, that's the, the, the entire premise of his book and, and all of his writings on, on German politics. It is that even before... Um, even before National Socialists and the NSDAP or Adolf Hitler can ever be accused of any wrongdoing, he takes it for granted that it's evil. And that goes back to the, to the reading of Mein Kampf, and, and that goes back to um, the, the Jewish refusal and the American liberals' refusal to see that Germans should have a right of self-determination. That they're basically reading Mein Kampf and saying, "Oh no, this man is 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 a, is a tyrant and a, and a terror and an evil man." So, if Hitler is a tyrant, what does that make Stalin? Well, well, right, but but he's presupposing he exactly. Stalin gets a pass. The KPD gets a pass. He, he's presupposing that Adolf Hitler is evil because of his own views. Uh, of of liberal democracy and, and how he thinks uh, every nation should act, right? It's basically they give self determination lip service, and, and basically no nation, in the Jewish and, and the liberal, which may as well be Jewish worldview, nobody really has a self a right to self determination, but because nobody has a right to national homogeneity. Or, or even to, um, to, 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 to to their own national sovereignty. They, they didn't know that. Yeah, you, know, you, you can be sovereign as long as you let us do with your nation what we want to do. Well, that's not sovereignty. That they're all lip service. They're all hypocrites. And Orlo is a reflection uh, of American liberal hypocritical hypocrisy. Well, you know, look at the um, recent elections in the Palestinian Authority. They elected Hamas. So the Americans and the Israelis basically said, oh, we're not going to recognize that government. Those elections don't count. You can only vote for people we approve of. Well, all right. Well, what happened when Austria elected Kurt Wolfheim? And, and the NATO and the other Western governments forced him out of office. And then a few years later, they left um, George Taylor. I can't under. I, I heard Kurt Waldheim and then nothing else. 
I'm sorry, I think I'm having problems with memory with my computer. Well, what happened when Austria elected Peter Waldheim and, and the other Western nations with political pressure on Austria forced him out of office? And they did the same thing with George Hagler with Austria in their game. And he was forced out of office. And it's about what is democracy to sham. All right, shall I um, continue? Yes. After detailing NSDAP success in elections in 1929 and 1930, Orlau does claim that
and the proletarian revolution just around the corner. But he infers that the Nazi claims concerning the communist threat and the communist's own boasts are exasperated, and that the communist threat to revolution really did not exist at all. Then Orlau describes conditions of the Communist Party in these crucial years as one of misdirection and fractured leadership. But there were also profound differences between the two extremist parties. The intra-party struggles in the NSDAP concerned only German issues, while those among the communists were closely related to the battles for power in the Soviet Union and control of the Comintern among Lenin's successors. The Nazis had a sure fight of Prussian strategies, but the communists never developed a separate strategy for getting a power in the state. The correct party line in Prussia was merely one of issues that fueled the chronic intra-party factional disputes rocking the KPD. Despite some significant tactical shifts between 1929 and 1933, the KPD generally followed a leftist or ultra-leftist course. In both leaders and strategy, the German communists were closely allied with the Zinoviev faction within the Comintern leadership in Moscow. And as some of you might recall from Russia number one, Zinoviev, his real name was Applebaum. He changed it. Of course, he was a Jew. That goes without saying, but I just said it. Heavily dependent on the Comintern for both ideological guidance and financial support, the KPD faithfully followed the Comintern's social fascism line. According to this concept, some of whose most enthusiastic proponents were communist members of the Prussian Landstag. The KPD identified the SPD, Social Democrats, rather than the Nazis or the DNVP, as the spearhead of fascism and capitalist reaction in Germany. The communists were slow to recognize the Nazi danger, arguing well until the 1930s that the NSDAP was less dangerous than the social fascist SPD and the Prussian government that party dominated. Well, well, this is this. A lot of this is based on Orlo's conjecture, and if it was true, why was the essay necessary? Why were the communists consistently um, using violence to interrupt national socialist rallies and and, and 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 national socialist meetings? That's why the essay was necessary. That's why the essay and the communists were always fighting in the streets. So, so, yes, the SPD was a target of the communists because they wanted to um, discredit it in order to, to win over its voters, right? And, and there's no doubt that they, they saw them as being um, bourgeois socialists, and, and, and basically they, they had to um, discredit and, and bring down the, social, the, the mainstream socialist party hoping that they would be the only alternative to those voters. It, it didn't work. But I think that Orlo is whitewashing the, the, um, the interactions between the KPD and, and the NSDAP, the, the National Socialists. Right. Well, he is correct, though. Stalin did label the SPD a social fascist party, a, you know, a decadent, reformist, bourgeois capitalist attempt to appease the workers, and he refused to allow the communists to organize with the social democrats. Well, well right. It may, perhaps that was a bad move on, on the communist part, evidently, because it didn't work out for them, right? Satan's but kingdom they, divided against itself. Well, well, right, and Satan's always divided against itself, but that, that still doesn't dismiss Orlo's downplaying 
the, the constant violence between the KPD and the, the, the National Socialists, but which right. he whitewashes here. Consequently, communist theoreticians argued that the destruction of the SPD as the last real pillar of capitalism was a prerequisite for the collapse of the capitalist system as a whole and inauguration of the communist revolution that would inevitably follow. It is ironic that after months of intra-party wrangling, which concerned personality clashes more than disagreements over strategy, the victory of the ultra-leftists and their doctrine of social fascism was complete just a few weeks before Hitler became chancellor. Well, the, the communists always think that they have some scientific theory that revolution will follow, the last crisis of capitalism. It's all just a bunch of bunk. The revolution comes about when they finally force the nation into a crisis and bring about a violent revolution, when the nation's weak enough. Well, well absolutely. And, and we'll see that... Um... And that was what the communists wanted to do. What was cons- what was cause enough um, confusion and anarchy to bring about that revolution. That 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 was their goal, and that they didn't meet it. Now, one of the reasons why I believe they didn't meet that goal was because uh, of the of the national socialists standing in the way. All right, they, they would have achieved. If Weimar Germany had continued, they they eventually would have achieved their goals. I'm sure. Right, it, it Weimar taken, was weak. Right, it may have taken ten more years, but they would have achieved it. All right, would you like to take over? We will see later in this presentation, and 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 not much later. There's not much of it left. That that um, Orlo does mention later in the book that there were street fights pretty persistently between. The, the communists and the national socialists. Orwell later asserts that um, the communists could not be any real threat to the German state. Uh, I'm sorry, did you did you read up to the part where... Um, We're on Orwell, Orwell later oh, okay. asserts. Oh, okay, right, right. That the communists could not be any real threat to the German state where he states that at the beginning of 1932, the Communist Party was in the midst of a major crisis. The the KPD came under the control of increasingly opportunistic and infantile elements, incapable, and this is more Orlo's objection, right? Uh, Subjectivity, right? The The KPD came under the control of increasingly opportunistic and infantile elements, incapable of launching a revolution, unable to persuade most German workers to desert their traditional allegiances, meaning to the SPD, and blind to the real menace of the Nazis. The KPD wallowed in verbal radicalism. And and I would say that it was perhaps providential that during these years, the communists may have been incapable of launching a real revolution. In his next chapter, in chapter 6, and we will quote it, Orlo shows that the German government in the last years of the republic did not share his opinion. They did believe that the communists were very capable of launching a revolution, right up to 1933. You know, Bill, the German military, the... um the Reichswehr was limited to 100,000 men, and the Front Kampfverbund had over 130,000 in 1930-1932, so they outnumbered the military. So why wouldn't they be capable well, well, of... Well, right. 
And that was why the, the, the Reichs there and the federal government were upset that the Reich was upset that the that, that Prussia wouldn't allow the police in Prussia to cooperate with the Reichswehr at that time, as we discussed in, in the opening of this presentation. That because the Reichswehr numbers were so limited and and, and it really handicapped them in in um in handling the communists by themselves, right? From chapter six, Prussia and the Depression, in in politic during the Republic's final years, 1930 to 1933. And I have some notes before I make some citations. Well, in chapter five, in his description of the condition of the Communist Party in the final years of the Republic, Orwell attempted to downplay communist capability for revolution and to depict the Nazis as having exacerbated the threat. Here he informs us that the German state, the Reich, saw a communist revolution as a far more pervasive danger. The following text is from pages 185 to 187 of his book, and it begins with the conclusions concerning a debate in the Prussian legislature over whether the NSDAP should be banned in Prussia. Assessing this, we must not forget that Prussia's government was ruled, was dominated by social democrats who had the most to lose if the DNVP, the German National People's Party, or the NSDAP ever came to power. And I will quote from Orlo now, in that, in, in, and he's covering that debate in the Prussian legislature over whether the National Socialists should be banned, right? Legally, the Reich's cabinet, the, the Reich cabinet's differing assessment of the Nazis did not prevent Prussia from taking vigorous action of its own, but there is little doubt that Brüning's appeasement policies seriously discouraged those in Prussia and some other lander or some other states who wanted to move against the Nazis. The state officials lamented that since the Nazis were organized throughout the country, prohibiting the party in one state would simply mean that Hitler's movement would transfer its operations to other lander or other states. But here, the, but there was a persuasive counterargument. If, as the Prussians had always argued, control of Prussia meant control of Germany, then making things difficult in Germany's largest state would have meant a serious weakening of the Nazi movement. Instead, after the summer of 1930, Prussia allowed the initiative in the battle against political extremism to slip out of its hands. Prussian interior ministry officials were concerned with the threat posed by the Nazi stormtroopers, but they were almost as worried about another far-right paramilitary group, the Stahlhelm, for many contemporaries, the Stahlhelm seemed both ready and able to stage a putsch of its own. It had, it had a membership of almost 5 million. Its leadership corps was comprised primarily of former career military officers. It was closely linked to the DNVP, the Reichswehr, and the Nazis. In retrospect, fears of the Stahlhelm putsch appeared groundless, despite its impressive numbers and combat simulating activities, including nighttime maneuvers. The Stahlhelm, like the communist paramilitary organization, was a paper tiger, and, and this is Orlo's opinion concerning the Stahlhelm and the communists. 
He well, I would say neither was a paper neither is a paper tiger, but the Stahlhelm it's they're not inclined to violently overthrow the existing order, murder local and um, provincial government officials and establish a tyranny. They're trying to attain power by working within the system where if the rote front Kampferbund had 5 million members and you know, thousands of former career military officers, there would have been a Bolshevik revolution and a civil war in Germany. Well, well, absolutely. Absolutely, without a doubt. And and likewise with the Stahlhelm, also the National Socialists had no intentions on overthrowing the government by force or, or provoking a revolution of their own. They weren't interested in drowning Germany in a sea of blood where the communists, they want as much blood as possible. Didn't Zinoviev even say that? More blood, floods of blood? Right. And, and I think I might have it further on in my notes, if, if I didn't miss it already, that the, um, the National Socialists and, and the other right-wing paramilitary groups at this time that Orlo points out, points out the Viking Bund, the Stahlhelm, that they never commit wanton acts of violence aimed at the general population or the state. And the communists did do those things. Well, the communists will use violence against anybody who's not a communist. Right. The communists did do those things. They were certainly a threat to, to the government, to the standing government, a, a threat uh, under um, what we would consider illegal means to the well, standing government and to the people of the state. The and they proved it time and again. The communists in Germany were a threat to Anybody and everybody who wore a military uniform, a police uniform, or was a member of the government but wasn't in the Communist Party. Well, just like America in the 60s. Even, even more than in the case of the Nazis, the Reich, the German federal government, and, and the state, meaning Prussia in this instance, took entirely different approaches to Stahlhelm activities. The Veterans Organization had powerful friends in high places, notably the Reich president, its honorary national chairman. Moreover, Hindenburg interpreted his Schirmherr, or protector role, quite literally. At the request of the Stahlhelm's leaders, he openly intervened to protest Prussia's move against his organization. Since it was virtually impossible to coordinate actions with the Reich government, Prussian authorities once again watered down their planned moves against the organization, which included a total prohibition of the Stahlhelm's paramilitary activities and uniform demonstrations in order to avoid friction with the Reich government, but which the Stahlhelm was never a threat, that they, they never tried to overthrow the state. It's ridiculous. The Prussian and Reich governments also had far different views of the threat from the extreme left, the Rotair Front Kampferbund, the, the RFB, the Red Front Fighters Association. Prussian authorities certainly recognized the RFB's violent character. Now, now here we're talking about, uh, about um, 1932, right? Prussian authorities recognized the RFB's violent character. Well, they had ordered their dissolution in 1929, right? And they're still and around. They're still around, right. According to Prussian statistics, it was involved in about as many instances as political violence 
as the Nazi stormtroopers, since the two organizations often attack each other. Well, well that, that's what I would be expecting, because that's why the stormtroopers were formed, or you wouldn't have a National Socialist Party. The Communists right. destroyed it. So, Bill, what, what is this? Um, you, you kick the Jews out of one province, so they move to another, convert to a, a, a Catholicism, they become wet Jews, and they come back. So you dissolve the rote front confraboond. You, you come back through the neighborhood the next day, um, a cop walking the beat, and you wonder what's going on here. And they say, um, oh, we're not the rote front confraboond, we're de rote front. And then they've got a different flag and a different sign on their office building, and it's all the same guys, and they're wearing slightly different uniforms. Well, well. It, it's right. right. It's I mean, it, it wasn't even that, though. They're still organizing as the Rope Front Comforboon, and right. they've been outlawed for three years. Severing, at, well, well, I'll start over the last sentence. According to Prussian statistics, it was involved, the, the RFB, in about as many instances of political violence as the Nazi stormtroopers, since the two organizations often attacked each other. Severing and Abeg, however, doubted accurately that the RFB was capable of staging a coup or starting the revolution. That was a constant theme of the organization's rhetoric. Well, well, if they keep on threatening it, you should expect them to, to attempt it sooner or later. And, and they had attempted that they had performed many other acts of violence over a 15 year period. Well, so why wouldn't they? In, in Western nations today, how many times would you have to threaten the life of the um, head of state or head of government in your country before the police arrest you? Well, right. I mean, it's re or Orlo's downplay of this is, is extreme, right? That's what's extreme here. The right government, however, argued, as it had since the 1920s, the RFB was a far more serious threat to law and order than the stormtroopers or the Stahlhelm. The result was more friction between the Reich and the state, meaning the Prussian local government. Federal authorities again urged the Prussian government to order the dissolution of the RFB. That now the RFB was dis dissolved in 1929 after the May riots. When the state refused, now they're refusing. So, so they ordered them dissolved, and, and evidently they didn't dissolve, and now they refuse to dissolve them. When the state refused, the Reich, cabinet, the Reich cabinet accused Prussia of being soft on communism. We presented Orlo's description at the beginning of this presentation well, you know, to that. That's a, Bill, that's a generous accusation. I would accuse them of being in bed with communism. Well, well right, absolutely. And, and by this time, they probably were or at least many of the individual politicians probably were, that they, that they saw their, um, their power base slipping away. They saw the, the elections that the National Socialists were winning and, and gaining more and more parliamentary seats in, in all the, the regional and the, the, the Reich parliaments. So, so it seems to me that, you know, since their earlier hardline stance against the KFB didn't work, why wouldn't they take a softer stance? I mean, it seems to me that it's the logical thing for them to do, being socialists and a lot of them being Marxists themselves. We presented Orlo's description at the beginning of this presentation that after May 1929 communist riots in Berlin, the RFB was banned. Here it is apparent that the SPD in Prussia must have been schizophrenic, 
or perhaps infiltrated by communists, or perhaps Orlo is making some sort of misrepresentation somewhere. And in his description of the German political parties, Orlo described the bitterness in, in, in chapter 5 of his description of the KPD and the SPD, he described the bitterness that existed between the communists and the social democrats who controlled the Prussian government through the end of the Weimar era and described how the KPD saw the SPD as an enemy even greater than the Nazis. Yet here we see that the SPD and the Prussian government were, after 1930, refusing to ban the KPD's paramilitary branch, the RFB. The KPD was being funded by Moscow, and Orlo describes that here. It had its primary allegiance to Stalin and to the Soviets in Russia, as Orlo describes here, and had an active paramilitary organization inside Germany, as Orlo describes here. Additionally, there were countless threats of communist revolution, countless skirmishes between the Nazis and the communists, and the communists had a long history of violence against the state. <laughs> Excuse me. That history of violence was something that the Nazis were not accused of since the days of the Beer Hall Putsch in Munich. <coughs> well, Hitler explicitly swore out, swore off another putsch, didn't he? <coughs> well, yeah, you know, the Beer Hall Putsch wasn't supposed to be a putsch. It wasn't violent. It was supposed to be a peaceful takeover. Hitler had hoped that the army would follow him, and instead the army opposed him. And it failed. Right, but it wasn't a 1919 Bavarian Soviet Republic Munich takeover where they seize hostages, <laughs> kill thousands of people, and the army has to crush them. Right, exactly. It, it was hit, hit, the, the National Socialists killed nobody in the Beer Hall Push. That They were victims in the Beer Hall Push. I think three or four police officers were killed, but... When police are shooting at your at your line but, of well, archers, you know, yeah, right. stuff happens. But, but they weren't, the National Socialists themselves weren't the aggressors, right? They didn't right. shoot first. If that had been a communist push, there would have been hundreds of casualties, mostly civilians. Absolutely. Thousands. The only reasonably valid conclusion to all of this in relation to the burning of the Reichstag is that the communist threat of violent revolution was still very real in the first months of the Hitler government, and Hitler had every reason to suspect a communist hand in the act. He, he had every reason to do so. I want to quote from, um, from Leon de Grell, from Hitler, Democrat, Chapter 6, Part 3, The Social Revolution, by General Leon de Grell. De Grell was an SS member... And he worked, he started as a, a private or a corporal and worked his way up to general. He, he was a um, a Belgian politician. He was a Rexist. And, and right. I, did he found the Rexist party or, or was he, he only a... he, he founded Rexism and then he joined the Wallonian contingent of the Waffen SS. I believe it was the, what, the, the Wallonians. Well, they're they're Germanic, aren't they? The the Walloons, the Wallonians. Yeah, yeah. There's Belgium's population is split between French speakers and German speakers, right? 
Right, and he, he was a general within three years, so he rose pretty quickly. And he had the Knights Cross. He was pretty brave and well decorated. Well, well, this this is from an article excerpt from his book, which appeared in the June 1996 issue of the Barnes Review. And and was a politician and, and a successful politician in Belgium before he became a, a Waffen SS member. The German Marxists had always been intolerant. They had never conceded liberty to anyone but themselves. The Rotfahn, the RFB, right? The Rotfahn of May 30th, 1920, wrote in so many words, quote, the proletariat claims for itself the liberty of assembly. It must be denied to its enemies. And, and you know, that's something that the Marxists put to practice by attempting to violently interrupt all the meetings of their political rivals throughout the Weimar years. They wrote it, and they practiced it. And that's what necessitated the development of the SA within the NSDAP. The communists, when they're a (coughs) minuscule minority and they're not in power anywhere and they have no influence, they shout for minority rights, freedom of speech, freedom of association, and on American universities, the campuses, the colleges in the 40s, 50s, and into the 60s, conservatives gave them equal time when they weren't deserving of equal time because they only had two or three supporters in the audience. They gave them access to their audiences, and then as soon as the communists began to come to power and they were normalized and mainstreamed, they became you know, part of the establishment, they crowded out the conservatives, and they used violence well, even today. If the conservatives are idiots. They're idiots. If they'd have studied the, the, the rise of Marxism in, in, in Europe and, and understood this history, they would have never given them the chance to speak. Well, when an, They didn't deserve the chance to speak. They don't merit it. Well, when an idiot Marxist or some clown who thinks he can hijack your audience, some Walker-type idiot, hate to bring him up, but he's a perfect example, when he comes by shouting about freedom of speech and how he has a right to address your audience... He doesn't understand the concept that you paid for the meeting hall. These people came to hear you speak. If he wants an audience, he can go post flyers and print up his own leaflets and rent his own meeting hall. So he starts to talk to your audience. The only thing he understands is when one of the SA guys in the meeting hall beats him over the head, fractures his skull, and throws him into the alley. Absolutely. They understand that. You know, when when they wake up several hours later, they realize that they're not welcome at your meeting hall. Well, well, DeGrelle goes on to say, anyone who did not think like the Marxists was a heretic. And and that's why they only gave for themselves the freedom of assembly and denied it to their enemies. To continue with DeGrelle, the world bastion of Marxism, the USSR, has proven it a thousand times. Whether it was a question of the doctrinaire Lenin of 1917 or the brutal Stalin victor in the Second World War, Anyone who was not in accord with them found himself in the cellars of the Cheka or perhaps admiring Russian scenery from the top of a gibbet or eating rats caught at night in the latrines of a frozen camp in the Siberian wilderness. And Hitler committed the crime of not only not being a Marxist, but of being fundamentally anti-Marxist by resorting to the very tactics of Marxism. As a matter of fact, The fury of the Reds didn't trouble him at all. He even lay in wait for them to provide proof that the rule of terror had come to an end, that he was firmly determined 
to oppose Marxist terrorism with an implacable counterterrorism as the only real solution if loyal citizens were permitted to live free. To submit to the law of the hoodlums was to give up defending liberty. You don't extend your hand to enemies like that, as so many simpletons do these days. You use their own methods and put them out of their misery. So today, useful idiots write books describing SH stormtroopers on the same level as the Marxist hoodlums who they had the nerve to stand and oppose. And basically, Orlo is that useful idiot. However, even in his writing, as much as he tries to, to play, to downplay the, the communist threat and, and, and the very real fear that the German people had uh, of being um, taken over and, and, and destroyed by another Bolshevik revolution certainly existed right up until the Reichstag fire, right up until the Enabling Act. There should be no doubt. So now, uh, understanding this, we can well, we can understand why the National Socialists reacted to the Reichstag fire as they did. And the communists were powerful in Germany by, by German standards. In um, in May twenty, in the election of May twentieth, nineteen twenty eight, the Communist Party got ten point six percent of the vote. In the election of September 14th, 1930, they got 13.1% of the vote. In the election of July 31st, 1932, they got 14.6% of the vote. In the election of November 11th, 1932, they got 16.9% of the vote. That, that was their peak, November 11th, 1932. That, the, the, the threat of a communist revolution in Germany was very real, and they had the voters and, and the numbers to do it. There should be no doubt. Any closing comments? Well, thinking back on the Russia number one series, I have to believe the Germans, basically being right next door to that nightmare, understood and realized what communism would mean for Germany, which is why the communists never were able to get more than 20% of the vote. And that's why the communists had to resort to naked violence in Germany. That's why there was a Bavarian Soviet Republic, the murder of hostages in Munich, an uprising in Berlin. And the Freikorps fought not because they were paid. They weren't mercenaries. They fought because they knew not to fight would mean surrendering Germany to Bolshevism. And that would mean the death of the fatherland and perhaps half the people in the country. Well, right. But when the National Socialists came to power that they and, and the Reichstag burned, that they had every reason to believe that it was the communists, and they were wrong, or, or at least they were well, apparently wrong. Well, the evidence indicates they were wrong. It was certainly the work of one communist, Vanderlub, and he said he intended it to be a symbol of resistance against the Nazis and spark a general uprising. Well, well the only way Germany was going to put away the fear of, of a Bolshevik revolution what was to eliminate the communists, and that's what they did. Right. And that should be to the National Socialists' credit if we understood the truth about communism. And our academics, our mainstream academics, won't let that happen. 
that they well, deny the truth of communism. Hitler kept his promises. You read Mein Kampf, he said he was going to smash all the other parties, abolish parliamentarian democracy, establish an autocratic authoritarian state, and destroy communism. He kept his promises. And that sets the stage for our program next week, so we'll leave it there. Absolutely. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for joining me. Praise Yahweh, and good night.